New and seasoned OTs are finding their calling in pelvic health. After all, what's more ADL than sex, peeing, and poop? But here's the question, what does it take to become a successful, fulfilled, and thriving OT in pelvic health? How do you go from beginner to seasoned and everything in between? Those are the questions, and this podcast will give you the answers. We are inspired OTs. We are out-of-the-box OTs. We are pelvic health OTs. I'm your host, Lindsay Vestal, and welcome to the OTs in Pelvic Health podcast. So in our very first episode, I talk all about the most foundational, fundamental question there is. What is a pelvic floor OT? All right, let's get into it. So a question I get a lot is, what is a pelvic floor OT? Right? Are you wondering that same thing? I think it's a really natural question. And the reason for that is, is that many, many of us, the public, even OTs, have heard about PTs and pelvic health. Right? The natural question that arises from that is, well, then what's a pelvic health OT? Can we even do this work? I find that it all comes down to your approach, not your credentials. There really isn't any skill that PTs have that OTs can't acquire. And likewise, there's no skills that an OT has that a PT can't acquire. It's literally about skill acquisition and desire. That's it. Now, that being said, I am biased towards a pelvic health approach that, let's say, looks more at the person as a whole, including the physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental wellness aspects. We aren't beings that are in silos. We're a whole person. And it is absolutely essential to learn how to connect with our clients and ask questions about these areas of their life. How to use motivational interviewing, how to use nonverbal communication, and how to approach the relationship with a facilitator versus a fixer approach. In the decade that I have been a pelvic health OT, I have found that addressing everyday activities in a person's life while taking into account their environment, their relationships, their level of functionings, and their goals are key. Why? Why is this approach key? Well, the thing is that pelvic health addresses the most intimate aspect of our clients' lives, right? I mean, the three main jobs of pelvic health are elimination, And by the way, this means keeping it in when it's not time to go, but also letting it out when it is completely. Second job, intimacy. So this means participating in whatever intimate act you choose and having it be pleasurable with the ability to experience orgasm. And last up, support. So that's elimination, intimacy, and support. And when I talk about support, this includes the organs within the pelvis, but also the support that goes all the way up to the top of the head, right? Thanks to gravity, the pelvic floor supports everything on top of it, right? So the viscera in our abdomen, our hearts, our lungs, our 10-pound skull, and everything in between, right? 
What a huge job for such an underrated body part. All of the jobs that the pelvic floor have often happen behind closed doors, right? Particularly intimacy and elimination. And what happens when an activity happens in secrecy? Well, we don't have many opportunities to talk about how it functions optimally. So for example, have you ever asked someone, hey, uh, so when you start peeing, do you like ever push a little bit to get it going? Or, hey, uh, it kind of hurts when my partner and I start fooling around. Does that ever happen to you? Nah, (laughs) I don't think this happens very often, even with our closest of friends. So this means we don't know things like it is optimal to not use effort to start or stop our urine. Or that we should pee once every two to four hours. Or... That just-in-case peeing is an optimal for bladder and brain communication. And of course, that intimacy of every kind should not hurt. These are the kind of myths that we're going to be busting on this podcast. Are you in? Is this interesting to you? I urge you to hit subscribe because I don't want you to miss it when I have any future episodes coming up. Also, I have got to tell you that it is 100% within the OT scope of practice to address pelvic health. Hello, what is more ADL focused than peeing, pooping, and having sex? Seriously, right? There is a huge lack of knowledge and understanding concerning OT's role within the pelvic health field. And even though it's in our scope of practice, it is truly up to each and every single one of us to take our own unique road that basically gives us our competency to work with our clients. There is not a one-size-fits-all approach to becoming a pelvic health OT. And becoming one does not have to look like you're walking around as an OT in a PT's clothing, nor should it look like a PT walking around in OT's clothing. I think we all know that regardless of your specialty, the majority of our specialized learning comes after we graduate, right? Remember that both OTs and PTs come to pelvic health from such varied backgrounds. And this is what really creates a rich, individualized experience for our clients. But this comes with a double-edged sword because it also adds to the confusion about what a pelvic health session is like. It's really hard to place an experience in a box when we each forge our own journey to get there. A pelvic health session can include internal work or external work only. There's not even a set definition for that. So you can see why it's confusing for our clients to navigate. And, you know, PTs, they take their own path too when it comes to specializing in pelvic health. The APTA even has a women's health subsection. And while there are certifications out there, such as the one through Herman and Wallace, right, this is all put out there to streamline the path that professionals can take. But in most areas of the world, at the time of this recording, these certifications are not required for practicing within pelvic health. And here's the thing, there are way more clients in need of this very special area of rehab, and there is literally room for us all. Just as OTs and PTs work side by side in other areas of rehab, 
There is a huge need for us to work collaboratively in pelvic health, especially when you consider the sensitive taboo nature of this area of practice. So to focus in pelvic health means to include physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental aspects of a person. Connecting deeply with a client and asking questions with methods of motivational interviewing and nonverbal communication. You know, as OTs, we excel at encouraging our clients to tell more of their story versus assuming we know what's best for their health and well-being. And you know what? This is essential for any area of practice. Of course, this podcast is going to be specifically focusing on pelvic health. But to me, really operating from this mindset and the mindset of a trauma-informed therapist is the way we should all be addressing every single one of our clients, pelvic health or not. In pelvic health, we address the ADLs of our clients' lives while taking into account their environment, their occupation, their relationships, their level of function, and their goals. So I've talked a lot about how ADLs are absolutely within the pelvic health scope of practice, but what are the ADLs of pelvic health? What specifically are the ones that we look at in our sessions? Well, first, and maybe most obvious, is toileting, right? The conversation around urination, bowel movement, and their experience there. It's a clear connection. And one of the main functions of pelvic health is elimination. So how they do it matters. Whether they can get it out completely, or maybe it comes out when they're not ready for it to come out. This area is so under-discussed and incredibly important part of our ADLs, and it absolutely falls under a pelvic health OT's purview. Next up, sexual activity or intimacy. Now, this is a fundamental aspect of our quality of life, and again, a main function of the pelvic floor. So our ability to participate in intimacy, achieve orgasm, again, very taboo topics, but very important for our quality of life. We are helping our client figure out whether there could be a muscle dysfunction, could it be scar tissue, what are the reasons they're not able to participate. We're looking at the way things like across their lifespan impact them, such as pregnancy, menopause, and all of the stories play a huge role there. Is it just a matter of education? A lot of our clients are shocked to find out that the average arousal process for someone that identifies as a female is 40 minutes, 40 minutes in order for there to be adequate lubrication, in order for the cervix to lift in the vaginal vault to make room for intimacy. I mean, again, there are so many reasons why intimacy could be uncomfortable. And there's such an opportunity, such a huge opportunity for OTs to intervene. The next ADL, dressing. So consider the client who is older, who needs to get up in a hurry because they have to urgently go to the bathroom. So I'm thinking when I talk about this, I'm imagining a former client of mine who was a gentleman in his 80s. And he was standing over the toilet getting ready to urinate. And he didn't actually have the finger dexterity to unbutton his pants. And this happened, this experience happened multiple times daily. So he could actually make it to the toilet, but it became an issue of dressing. That was the reason for his incontinence. 
So by taking the time to discuss factors like this, which are part of our routine and our habits, they shine a light on where the incontinence was coming for this client. And this is a client who, if they shared their story of incontinence with a maybe a, gen- a general practitioner, this client might start going on medication or have a different intervention altogether when actuality, it was something as simple as finger dexterity and dressing management. Last is functional mobility. So this is getting from place to place while performing your ADLs. So getting on and off the toilet, in and out of the tub, in and out of the bed, going from room to room, even how our clients are participating in functional mobility can have a huge impact on pelvic health. So looking at the whole person, the whole lens, and breaking down the ADLs of pelvic health can shine light on the source and the cause of their issue. So we look at their clients' habits, their roles, their routines, as they pertain to toileting and sexual dysfunction. We also look closely at psychosocial causes and effects of pelvic floor issues, relationships, jobs, environment, and the interactions of all of those. Now, OTs are skilled in manual muscle testing and rehabilitation, but we also have that strong background in sensory approaches, working with trauma, and realizing when focusing on the actual physiological dysfunction creates more stress and anxiety. So let's look at habits, roles, and routines a little bit more as they relate to toileting, sexual dysfunction, and the ADLs of pelvic health. We would be doing a huge disservice to our clients if we didn't look at these things. It is often a huge aspect of my clients' incontinence. So yeah, while there may be a muscular implication There may be a hypertonicity tendency that needs to be addressed, an overactivity of the muscles. And I'll tell you what, sometimes it's just as simple as habits, roles, and routines. So for example, a client of mine who had urge incontinence, right? So this is that ability to, when you feel like you have to go, you gotta go right then and there, or it's potential that you might leak. This particular client is a teacher, and before she was a teacher, she was a nurse, so she's not used to having time be something she can control. She was always in a position where it was difficult for her to feel the urge and then respond to it. So she couldn't just pop into the bathroom anytime she wants in either of her careers. So she really got into the habit of holding urine, okay? And I'm talking over an eight-hour shift. She was lucky to go maybe once, occasionally the luxury of going twice. When a client doesn't go every two to four hours, which is the optimal amount, the stretch receptors inside the bladder can get actually stretched out, which basically means they become less sensitive to the perception of urine filling. And basically, it doesn't allow that reflex to be sent up the spinal cord that alerts us that it's time to look for a bathroom. So after years in a profession where time was not her own, this client just basically got into a vicious cycle of now having urgency when her bladder finally did fill. And I'm talking after the normal two to four hours, she was getting them close to every six hours. And let me tell you, they were intense. 
They were compounded by the fact that she wasn't drinking fluids during this time, right? She knew she didn't have adequate access to the bathroom. So what's a very common way that our clients try to solve this problem? Well, it's withdrawing from drinking, right? They withhold from drinking. The issue is this compounds the problem because now, now that urine in her bladder is much more acidic, which is more aggravating and annoying to that delicate lining of the bladder wall. So now urges are very intense, even more so. And this actually became a very simple reflection of us taking a look at what had become a habit and a routine for her. So we put her on a bladder schedule where she had to pee at first once every four hours, which seemed so extraneous to her, right? And over a few weeks, we backed it down to three, which enabled her body to get a better concept and perception of what it felt like to actually need to go to the bathroom. It helps normalize that communication between brain and bladder. And guess what? After we did this, she didn't have urge incontinence at all. I would say this probably took place over the course of about five or six weeks And for someone who had had a 33-year career of doing this between being a nurse and a school teacher, I'd say this was pretty amazing. So this is just a quick example of how we do indeed look at habits, roles, and routines as they relate to pelvic health. So a controversial question I get is, why not OTs in this area, right? If people are constantly wondering, Do we belong? Is it okay for us to do this? We need to be able to answer this question. We need to be able to understand their concerns and speak to them. So the first one I hear a lot is concern over our ability to conduct an orthopedic lumbopelvic assessment and a differential diagnosis within the hip, thorax, and lumbar region. Okay, so there are many OTs who may not feel comfortable in conducting these type of assessments as many school programs don't offer an in-depth look at this type of assessment. Okay, so I have two replies to this. Number one, most of us learn our skills outside of school. So OTs, if this is indeed an area you want to focus on and you want to get that skill set, guess what? There's a myriad of class options out there we can take, right? Acquire the skill. That's it. You've done it before. You can do it again for sure. Number two, we could refer out for anything we don't feel confident in assessing. We are happy to work and collaborate with fellow PTs, chiropractics, osteopaths, whoever we've developed a lovely referral relationship with. So get to know the professionals in your area. Get to know the other pelvic floor professionals and body workers whether or not they seem to to be in direct competition with you. Cross-referring keeps our clients' best interest at heart. And isn't that why we're rehab professionals, right? We are there to serve our clients. And whatever that means, that could mean sending them out to the person across the street. Now, sometimes it doesn't come down down to skill set. Sometimes it's personality, right? So I often refer out to my fellow competent professionals for this exact reason. It takes a village to help our clients. And it has been my experience that the general population has such a poor understanding of what the pelvic floor is and how it functions. 
and particularly how it's impacted by a whole body, whole person perspective. So I think the more of us alike, OTs and PTs working together in this field to spread the message, the better. By the way, on my OTs for Pelvic Floor Facebook group, I have a list, a directory of all the OTs in pelvic health, and I'd love to have you in there so we can continue to make connections and build referral networks within our community. So if you're not a member, jump onto Facebook, search OTs for Pelvic Health, the same name as this podcast, request to join, and one of the first things you can do is go to the files tab and add your name to the directory. Thanks for listening to another episode of OTs and Pelvic Health. If you haven't already, hop onto Facebook and join my group, OTs for Pelvic Health, where we have thousands of OTs at all stages of their pelvic health career journey. This is such an incredibly supportive community where I go live each and every week. If you love this episode, please take a screenshot of this episode on your phone and post it to IG, Facebook, wherever you post your stuff, and be sure to tag me and let me know why you like this episode. This will help me to create in the future what you want to hear more of. Thanks again for listening to the OTs and Pelvic Health Podcast.